You would join me in prayer as we open scripture together this morning as the people of God. For God, it is our prayer that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts together would be acceptable in your sight. For indeed, you are our rock. In your name we pray. Amen. In 1889, he and his brother made their way from the mountains of North Georgia and western North Carolina to Texas. George W. Truett's parents and many of his siblings had already made that trek westward across Tennessee. And although Truett had aspired his entire life to be nothing but a lawyer, he even had a free education to Mercer University offered to him. He moved west to Texas. And despite this new location, he was absolutely convinced Truett was convinced he was yet to be a lawyer, and so he enrolled in Grayson Junior College, began his classwork there in 1890. He joined the small church there in White Wright, Texas, the White Wright Baptist Church. He taught Sunday school there, and on the occasion when the pastor would be absent, he would preach in his stead. But Truett always mentioned that he would stand to the right of the pulpit because only those who were called to the task should stand behind that desk. And one Saturday evening in 1890, Truett attended the church's monthly Saturday evening conference, and he said as he entered the sanctuary, it seemed uncommonly full on that evening. After the conference was over, the pastor sermon sermon had been completed, He said a revered, frail, older deacon stood up and he talked about the duties of individuals and the duties of congregations. And then Truett said he got painfully specific and personal. The deacon said to the church, it is my deep conviction as it is yours, for we have talked much with one another, that this church Duty is to that this church duty to perform, and that we have waited late and long to get about it. And he said, I therefore move that this church call a council to ordain Brother George W. Truett to the full work of the gospel ministry. And immediately a second came from the back. And before they had the chance to vote, George W. Truett sprang up from his pew and declared, I'm appalled, I'm simply appalled that you would do this. He asked them to give him six months to pray and for them to reconsider. He'd been a school teacher in the mountains of North Carolina. He'd started an academy in the foothills of North Georgia, and he was en route to becoming the lawyer he had always hoped he would be. But that was not what was going to happen. That was not what he had expected on that Saturday evening. The church responded to Truett after he had made that cry to them that they had been called to do this task. They had been called to do this task now. And so they voted and affirmed his call to ministry. And recalling that moment many years later, Truett wrote, There I was against the whole church, against a church profoundly moved. There was not a dry eye in the whole house. It was one of the supremely solemn hours in a church's life. 
And he said, I was thrown into the stream and I just had to swim. The call to ministry, it comes to us in all forms. It manifests itself in a multitude of ways. If we had time to go around the room, what we would hear today is that for some of you, this sense of call came in a very particular form of ministry. Others, you've responded to a call to ministry. You've come to this place and you continue to seek God's direction on your own life. For some of you, the call came in a singular moment of deep and profound realization. And yet for others of us, a call came as a slow stirring that prompted and prodded over a long period of time. And whether your call came in a moment or over a long period of years, whether you feel called to a particular task or your call yet remains to be unfurled, the call before us is real. It requires us to do the hard work of discernment even now in our own lives. And so as part of that process of discernment, the faculty have decided this spring We will preach through some of the great narratives of Scripture and the great text that deal with call and call narratives. And I know what you might say. Maybe even as Dr. Nong began to read Exodus 3, you might have said, I know this story. I've known it since my childhood. I know about burning bushes and callings of Abraham and the story of Isaiah and the calling of Paul. I know those stories, you might be tempted to say. But Joel Green reminds us that Scripture is concerned with shaping our imaginations. And so we return to these great narratives, not so that your call would mimic these great stories, but we return to Scripture and we read and we reread these great stories so that our imaginations might be shaped by God through them. So that in hearing these stories, we will discover the way in which our story, our call, is being weaved into the great narrative of God's work in history. Our text this morning takes us back to the story of Moses. And it reminds us that to hear the call before us, we must open our eyes first. You know the story. Moses is there alone, keeping the flock of his father-in-law. He's on the backside of a mountain, isn't he? The story occurs, it's far from the trappings of an Egyptian court where Moses was once raised, and it's a far piece away from the people that he will soon deliver. He's there alone in the wilderness. In fact, the Hebrew says he's behind the wilderness on the mountain of God at Horeb, a word that means desolation or wasteland. It's the far side of the wilderness. It's the wasteland. That's not the place you expect people to hear a call unless you happen to be called by this God. This God seems to call people who have found themselves on the far sides of mountains on occasion. People who would have never imagined a call would come to them, and yet somehow, in some way, that call came to them. 
It's on the far side, on the back side of the mountain, that Moses sees something. In fact, in this short text in Exodus 3, the word ra'ah in Hebrew, it occurs ten different times, about half the time Moses and about half the time God. It's interesting. The call to Moses doesn't come first by listening. It comes first by seeing. It requires Moses to see the call long before he hears the call. You know, seeing is a pretty complex thing. You know that. Our eyes, they're less than an inch across. They weigh less than a quarter of an ounce. These eyes are comprised of two different types of cells. Some are rod-shaped cells that will allow you to see the shapes in front of you. And then you have others that are coned shape that pick up the colors and the hues and differentiate those for you. And it says, according to neuroscientists, about half the brain becomes activated as it takes those cones and those rods and it tries to make sense of it all. And there in the back of your eye, every one of us is a blind spot. It's right where the optic nerve attaches to the retina, there is a blind spot. And were it not for the other eye, you would not be able to see at that spot. But because our eyes compensate for one another, because cone shape and rod shaped cells take in the world around us, because our brain somehow is able to translate it all into meaning, we can see if we will simply choose to look. On that day, on the backside of a mountain, Moses saw because he chose to look. I must turn aside, he said, so that I might look at this great sight and see why this bush is not burned up. Sometimes we look and things are not as we expected, are they? In this great encounter with God on the far side of the wilderness, Moses sees a great sight. It's a bush on fire and not being consumed. And Moses knows as well as you know that is not how it should be because I suspect every one of us at some point in our childhood grabbed a stack of small dry leaves and a magnifying glass out of our house. And we learned pretty quickly if you hold the magnifying glass just right, dry brush, lights in an instant. In that moment, however, on the backside of that mountain, it didn't. I would think especially dry brush on the backside of a desert mountain would burn unless, unless God is in it. In a moment, in that moment, the natural phenomena, maybe it was held at bay on the backside of that mountain that was lit up with the fiery presence of God because it was signaling to us and to Moses all that was about to come. Because you know and I know and Moses knows, bushes do not remain unconsumed when they are on fire, but neither do rivers turn to blood. Neither do frogs and flies and locusts rise up and overtake a nation, and neither do gnats suddenly come forth from the dust. Hail and darkness don't fall across the land at the command of one person, and firstborn are not killed off in a night. 
and seas do not stand up to make walls so that people might pass through on dry land, and small babies are not plucked from a watery grave to bring deliverance for a whole nation unless, unless God is in it. And what about us? What about our callings? Don't you ever ask, God, don't you have any more burning bushes left for us? Perhaps we are so bent on listening, we have forgotten how to see. We need God to open our eyes so that we might see the great sight that is before us, the thing that might very well shape our own callings. There's a story the Benedictine monks tell about a young man who came to study at a monastery under one of the elders. After he had been there some time, began to adjust to this new life, he asked the elder monk, where shall I look for discernment, he said. Oh, here, said the elder, we'll be fine. Well, then when will discernment happen to me, the young man eagerly asked. Oh, it's probably happening right now, the elder said. Then why don't I experience, the young disciple asked. And the elder responded, well, it's because you do not look. Well, what should I look for, the young man replied. And the elder just smiled. Oh, nothing. Just look. But at what? What what should I look, said the disciple. Oh, anything that your eyes alight upon, the elder continued. And then the disciple said, well, shall I look in some specific and special way? No, not Not particularly, said the elder. Then why cannot I not see, said the young man. And the elder said, well, because to look, you must be here. The problem is that you are mostly somewhere else. Perhaps that should be our prayer at the beginning of this semester, that we are not somewhere else, but that we are here. That God would open our eyes that we all might see the call that remains before us. Perhaps you're midway through seminary or maybe even nearing the end. And while you won't admit it, you feel as though you're on the backside of a mountain and you're desperately seeking a word of discernment from God. Perhaps you should stop listening so hard and just start looking. Choose to be here. Turn aside and look so that you might hear a word from God. Perhaps there are burning bushes all around us, and I suspect there are. But in your haste to get somewhere else, you have missed the God who wants to meet you here. You see, to receive a call from God requires us not only to open our eyes to the work of God, but ultimately it requires us to open ourselves to the work of God. There was no burning bush in White Wright, Texas on that Saturday night in 1890 when George W. Truett saw the fiery presence of God lighting up a room in that small church. He saw the fire, though, and he opened himself up to the call that was before him. 
In our text today, Moses looks and he sees this great sight. And then look what happens in verse 4. It is God who looks and God sees a great sight. It's Moses who's turned towards him. And God says, Moses, Moses. And Moses replies, Hineni, here am I. No English translation quite captures that phrase, and occasionally it chooses not to even translate it. But it's the word when Abraham was called by God to make his way up Mount Moriah, the Mount of Seeing, by the way, to take Isaac with him to do the unthinkable. When God calls to Moses, what does Moses say? But, Hineni, here am I. It's the same words that were uttered out of the mouth of Samuel as a young child there with Eli when he heard three times someone calling his name and each time he pops up from his mat yelling, Hineni, here am I, only to discover it was not Eli but the voice of God. It was the same thing uttered by Isaiah when God said, Whom shall I send? And what did Isaiah say but Hineni? Here am I. Moses falls into that great chorus of those faithful saints, both then and now, who have dared to utter the same, who have heard the call of God, and they've dared to declare, Here am I. You see, when you encounter the living God, burning bush or not, and when this God calls your name, There is but one response. Hineni, here am I. At this point in the narrative, Moses knows nothing of the task that is before him. He has no idea of the enormity of this calling nor the gravity of the task. All he knows is God has called and to that he must respond. In his little book of prayers, Michael Coist writes, Lord, you have seized me, and I could not resist you. I ran for a long time, but you followed me. I took by paths, but you knew those as well. You overtook me, and I struggled, and you won. And here I am, Lord, out of breath, no fight left in me, and I have said yes. And when I stood there trembling, defeated like a captor before you, Your look of great love fell upon me. And Lord, once more you made a desert around me, but this time it is different. You are too great. You seem to eclipse everything. What I had cherished now seems trifling, and my desires melt away in the sun under the fire of your great love. Nothing matters to me. Neither my comfort nor even my life. I desire only you. I want nothing but you. When God calls your name, I suspect that is how we feel. And that is why all we can say is, Hineni. At this point in your journey, you likely, you very likely know little of the calling that has been given to you. You likely have no idea of the enormity of this calling nor the gravity of the task that you will do. 
But if you know that God has called, and if you know that you must respond, it is enough. For now, it is enough. You see, in receiving a call from God, sometimes we may be deceived into thinking it's about us. About us and our being called. But the call to Moses reminds us it is always otherwise. God says to Moses in verse 7, I have seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cries from before their taskmasters. Indeed, I know their sufferings, he says. God has seen their brokenness. God has heard their cry. He understands the pain of the world. And God announces that he has come down to deliver his people and to take them, the Hebrew says, to wide open spaces. But then just a verse away, God says to Moses, I am sending you to deliver my people. And there we have it in tension. God saying, I am coming down to deliver my people. And to Moses, I am sending you, Moses. God coming down, a human being sent. You see, God knows that after a sojourn of nearly 400 years or so in Egypt, the Israelites might have just lost hope. They might have lost hope in the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. They might even have wondered if this God had abandoned them or, worse yet, had lost sight of them. But such was not the case. In fact, three times around this text, God tells us he sees them. In Exodus chapter 2, right before our text we read today, it reads, And God saw the sons of Israel And God knew. And God knew. In verse 7, And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and their cries I have heard from before their taskmasters, and I know their sufferings. And then in 9, he says, And now, behold, the cries of the sons of Israel, they've come up to me, and I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians have oppressed them. God sees and God knows. On, the random, on a random day on the backside of a mountain, Moses saw God in a burning bush, but long before that day, God had been watching his people God had been looking down upon his people, anguishing over their suffering, waiting to call out a servant to deliver his people. The call of Moses, you see, was never about himself. It was about a God who does not lose sight in his people. God wanted to deliver the people then. God wants to deliver his people even now. And for those of us who choose to whisper, Hineni, here am I. We are sent out to make it known that this God we serve has not forgotten his people. Craig Barnes, the president of Princeton Theological Seminary, tells the story when he taught at Pittsburgh Seminary of of the ordination of one of his students. And he, he writes, this young man is almost 30 years old. 
He's rustically handsome and one of the brightest students to have come through our seminary in a long time. And he said, but he hid his brilliance beneath this deferred shyness. He finished the seminary at the head of his class, and he could have gone on to graduate school if he had wanted to earn a Ph.D. But Barnes says he was always clear about his calling. He wanted to serve a local congregation, preferably a small one, perhaps in a rural part of the country. And so he said yes to the first church that offered him a job. And Barnes said, last fall, I preached at that worship service when he was installed as the pastor of the small congregation. From the airport, I drove three hours through the countryside and got lost more than once before I found the address that MapQuest could not find. He said, once the ordination service began, I looked out at the congregation of worried farmers, worn-out homemakers, and bored teenagers. A yellowed, fluorescent light hummed its way through the service. The microphone in the pulpit squealed when the speaker got a little too close, and the radiators banged as the hot water rushed through them. It seemed as if even the laments of the building were part of this sacred conversation between congregation, God, and the new pastor. And it occurred to me that I had never written an exam as challenging as the one that he would face here every Sunday. The great scholar Karl Barth, he writes, claimed that his early years as a pastor of the blue-collar congregation in Soffenfeld, Switzerland, were formative for the insights, insights that led him in his major breakthroughs in theology as a professor. And Barnes said, but I sat in that chancel and I watched my former student kneel to accept the laying on of hands, and I wondered how many brilliant Karl Barts came to but never left a Safanville. My former student had no strategic plan for turning this church around. His only ambition is to be the next in a long line of faithfully anonymous pastors who never move on to prestigious positions, but he isn't anonymous to these people who know his name. He'll spend years baptizing their babies, helping to deliver calves in the middle of the night, serving on the school board, burying husbands who die too soon, attending Fourth of July picnics, negotiating debates about how to pay for a church roof, and then every Sunday he will stand in the pulpit and he will try to make holy sense of it all. When the ordination service was over, we all made our way to the basement fellowship hall for the potluck dinner. Tables perched on a beige linoleum floor adorned with red and white checked vinyl cloths and small handmade arrangements of daisies. Families and friends had plopped into the gray metal folding chairs and they ate and they laughed and they gossiped and they teased. Several women fussed over the serving tables filled with casseroles and salads, fried chicken and jello. They could have been discussing their anxieties about the future of family farms, the economy, or just where the country's heading to. But there was none of that on this day, he writes. Even the small talk had a lilt to it. And I understood why when their new pastor entered the room. And I saw how many of his parishioners just wanted to touch him. He never even made it to the chair. One after another, they got up from the tables, wiping their hands in order to shake his. 
or giving him a hug or a few pats on the back, one came up with tears in his eyes. Barnes says this was a Eucharistic feast. A new pastor had come and the congregation took it as a sign that God knew how to find them yet again. Barnes said the holiness of the room was so apparent that I almost took off my shoes and no one wanted to leave. I'm not sure where your calling will take you, but this much you can be sure. There are people who are still weary of their own waywardness. They're still exhausted from their own brokenness. There are people who are swirling in the dark waters of loneliness and hopelessness who have become overrun by the day-to-day affairs of their lives. And they are sure, without question, they are sure that God may have lost sight of them. And they are all waiting for a word. They are waiting to know that God has not forgotten them. But someone has to tell them. The call is before us. The call is before you. Open your eyes. Dare to whisper Hineni this semester. Allow yourself to be sent by God, the one who still seeks to deliver his people. Thanks be to God.